Well, I'd like to Im- like you to imagine with me that uh, that you go home and uh, flip on the news. And uh, you go home and you flip on the news, and it, it's a breaking news report. It doesn't matter if you go to Channel 4, Channel 5, Channel 8. It doesn't matter what channel you go to. You know, every headline says breaking news, uh, and, and the cameras are focused on this courtroom scene. Okay, breaking news, courtroom scene. And, and so you go there, and uh, you, you, you're curious what's going on, and uh, you see the witnesses gathered in the courtroom. There's cameras everywhere. There's news reporters everywhere. Uh, breaking news, uh, the case of the millennium. And you're going, wow, this is a, this is a really big deal. And as uh, you hear the news reporters talk and as you're kind of getting your arms around uh, what the story is, uh, the camera pans back and zooms over to the defendant's desk. And the craziest thing in the world uh, jumps into your mind as, as you see, as, as the defendant turns around to face the camera. Uh, the person on trial in this uh, case of, of the millennium is God. You say, what? God's on trial? God is being tried? He's being taken to court? And you notice the, the, uh, the, the person, the, the desk where the court, where the judge should be sitting is occupied none other by the people of the world. The council of humanity has gathered to stand in judgment of the God of the universe. And witness after witness after witness, person after person gathers to plead their case against the God of the universe. They have something to contend with him about. What would you think about that? A trial where God is the defendant. A trial where humanity is standing in judgment of their own creator. As we parachute back into Job this morning, to Job chapter 13, that is precisely what's going on. That is precisely what Job wants to do. Job's desire is to take God to court to put him on trial, to make him to be the defendant and to call witnesses against him that God has indeed committed a grave injustice. Now, up until this time, if if you've been tracking in the book of Job, as as challenging as it's been for us to do that, uh, you know that that Job has desired to plead his case to God. But but God's not around. God's not answering him. He calls out to God and God doesn't respond. He, he says something to God and God doesn't respond. And so, so sort of as a last-minute resort, a, a final attempt uh, at, at hope here, Job says, well, if God's not going to respond, if I can't find him, then I'm sending him a subpoena. I'm going to call him to court so that he can show up, that he can come out of his hiding And then I can plead my case. And maybe if I can plead my case, then my name will finally be vindicated. Now, what what is Job all riled up about? What has happened in his life that he would want to bring a charge against God? What's what's gone on in the previous 12 chapters? Okay, everything? Lost his children. Lost his livestock. Okay. Right. 
And how does all how has all that gotten translated into contending with God? Okay. He's saying that God is being unjust. Now, that's true. Connect the dots now. He loses all this stuff, all this trial and suffering in his life. He concludes God is being unjust. What's the connection between the two? What, what's the interpretation that he makes that, concludes, that, that makes him conclude that God is being unjust? Yes, Wes. What's that? Okay, false punishment meaning... Okay. Job is interpreting the suffering in his life as God's punishment, right? And his three buddies who love him, who are his true friends, have come, come along and have, you know, talked in that vein that, Job, all this stuff is happening because there must be some sin in your life. There must be something wrong. And Job is saying, no, 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 there's no sin in my life. There's, there's nothing I've done wrong. I'm innocent. I'm righteous. All this suffering is unjust, Okay, now that's that's where we're at, and um, we've seen that we've we've kind of stumbled upon what we're we're calling the third theme of this book, that really revolves around the issue of justice. Remember the other two themes. The first theme is about what? Chapter one, chapter two. Worship. There you go. Why do we worship? Revolves around Satan's challenge. What was the second uh, theme of the book, the, the second issue of the book that the friends raise? Do you remember? What issue are they misunderstanding? You, you can look. Suffering, sure. They have a wrong view of suffering. It's that, just what we said, right? It's that retributive view. The idea is I do good, God brings blessing. I do wrong, God brings calamity or suffering. That, that's their working theology. It's, it's called retributive theology. Or, or uh, the kindergarten version is this is the vending machine view of God. I put good things in, I get good things out. I put bad things in, I get bad things out. Okay. But this is the issue of justice, and, and it really is calling into question, uh, is God right? Does he always do what's right? Or is there some darkness in him? Uh, look back at uh, Job chapter 13, uh, just by way of review. <clears throat> uh, actually, this goes back to chapter 12. Job is interpreting the counsel of his friends um, as they're out to get him. He's not receiving that in a helpful way. Uh, he affirms that God does everything. He wants to speak to God directly, not his friends who claim to speak for God but speak lies. In 13, chapter 13, verses 3 to 12, which is kind of where we left off last time, sets up what is the heart of this speech in verses, the end of 13 and chapter 14, which is Job's case that he takes against God. Uh, what he's saying is, look back at chapter 13, verse 2. He says, What you know also I know. I am not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty... And I would desire to argue with God. Okay? So what he's saying is, I want to go to God directly. I want to argue my case to him. The friends have claimed to speak for God, and he's saying, you guys are misrepresenting God. You're not getting it right. In fact, uh, he says in verse 9, 
Will it be well to you when God comes to examine you and he finds you to be a deceitful witness? So his desire is to come and to uh, plead his case uh, to God himself. Now, the verse that we kind of um, stumbled upon last time and spent most of our time is on verse thir- chapter 13, verse 15. Uh, I just want to direct your attention back there. Have you guys looked at that this week? Remember I asked you to kind of think about that verse and look at it. Any other further insight? Uh, we kind of had a, I think, a productive discussion last time and some good ideas and good thoughts on the table. Um, this is one of the most familiar verses in the whole book of Job. Uh, it goes like this, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. The, the King James Version, I will trust in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. And, and at first glance, and indeed most of the uh, most of the time when this verse is used, when we hear this verse, uh, we see this, as uh, the NASB has so- chosen to translate it here, a- as a, um, an ultimate affirmation of Job's trust and faith and hope in God. Even if God kills me, I'm going to continue to trust him and I'm going to continue to hope in him. And as we saw last time, there's a number of ways you can take the verse and a textual variant really makes the the verse problematic because you can take it two very different ways. Uh, The TNK, which is the the Jewish Publication Society, Tanakh, uh, more of a Jewish-English translation of the Hebrew Bible, uh, takes it like this, He may well slay me, I may have no hope. Um, So that would be saying, if God kills me, my hope goes down the drain, right? Uh, Whereas the NASB says, well, even if he slays me, uh, I will hope in him. And uh, just if you weren't here last week, um, really the issue is <laughs> you're going to say, how on earth can that be so similar? Um, the, the real issue is, does the text read, I will not have hope or I will hope in him? Okay, because you can take the verse either way. Um, Uh, in Hebrew, these letters are the same. These letters are slightly different. Okay, it would be this is actually low, and this is actually low. But you can see there's two different characters there, and that renders two very, very different um, translations. So, so which one is right? We had a good discussion, and uh, <laughs> lost it. What I want to do is just maybe kind of pull that together this week. Um, I, I spent a lot more time studying and uh, looking at this passage because I didn't want to leave you kind of hanging. And um, I think came up with some conclusions, if we can just start right there uh, before we move on in the text. Um, here's some additional helps, and I put these on your outline, okay? Uh, the most helpful thing that I learned this last week which was surprising until I dug into some dictionaries and really studied um, the passage in more detail, is that the word translated hope in the New American Standard is actually the word for wait. It's actually the same word used in Psalm 43 uh, when he says, um, uh, you know, why are you in despair on my soul? Uh, Why are you dismayed? Hope in God. Remember that? Uh, It's actually the word wait. Now, that, that's really profound um, because to put the word wait in there instead of hope uh, actually, I think, changes things quite a bit. 
Um, now, the idea of waiting is, is waiting in hope. Okay? It, usually it's used as I'm waiting in sort of a hopeful way. But it actually is not the normal word for hope. Uh, it's, it's almost always translated wait. Second thing is that the context is clear that Job's confidence and expectation is that he will be vindicated. Look down at verse 18. Behold, now I have prepared my case, and I know that I will be vindicated. Okay, So he goes into this saying, I know that I will be vindicated. His salvation is arguing and winning his case against God. Look down at verse uh, 16. He says, this also will be my salvation. Job, what will be your salvation? Look at the end of verse 15. That I will argue my ways before God and be vindicated. Okay? So Job's salvation, his hope, his confidence is that he will have opportunity to take God to court, to make his case that God will see that he's right and that God is wrong and will vindicate Job's name. That's his salvation. That's his hope. Okay? And I think, remember we talked about last time, the ultimate determiner of meaning is always the context. The context always has final say when we're trying to figure out what verses mean. And I think that that, that contextual factor is huge as to how we understand what that verse means. Also, the word order favors I will not wait rather than I will wait for him. Um, and I won't bore you with the technicalities there, but uh, he- Hebrew word order is very, very important. And uh, assuming that the word order is non-emphatic, that, that the writer is not emphasizing, not intending emphasis, then the word order wait, favors I will not wait. And Job seems to indicate that this is his only hope, or excuse me, Job seems to indicate that his only hope is to be vindicated in this life since he is not confident of life after death. Look at this. Look ahead to chapter 14, verse 14. This is interesting here. Look at what he says. He says, if a man dies, will he live again? So all the days of my struggle I will wait until my change comes. What's, what's he saying there? What's he saying? What, what about a resurrection? Okay. 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 Someone else? What do you think about that verse? Yes. Okay. Someone else, what do you think about 14? If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. Okay, what about 1 Corinthians? Okay. Are you guys hearing a belief in resurrection in this verse? Yes or no? Okay. Um, What he's saying here is, if someone dies, will he live again? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. The, the, the implied answer is no. If a man dies, he's not going to live again. That's all he has. 
Which is why he says at the end of 14, so all the days of my struggle, the endurance of the suffering, the endurance of the trial, I will wait until my change comes. What he's saying is, I'm going to hold out. I'm going to endure this struggle that I'm going through right now. Because the only hope I have is to be vindicated in this life. Do you see that? Um, you know, and remember, this is a very old book, very limited theology. Um, there are a number of people in the Old Testament who probably did not understand life after death like we do. I, I don't believe at all that uh, the Old Testament doesn't teach life after death. I think it's all over the place. But in this case, Job doesn't seem to be aware of that. And that's very, very important to understanding this verse because what he's saying is he's not confident of life after death, which means this life is the only chance he has to be vindicated. Okay? Um, so those are some contextual clues, some lexical clues there. And all that leads to what I'm going to call a conclusion. Okay? And this, this is, I don't think we need to be dogmatic. I don't think we pound the pulpit on this um, because I, I think uh, good commentators disagree here. I think the weight of evidence lands on the side of something like this, where he says, even if he kills me, I cannot wait. Cannot wait to what? I must argue my ways. Surely I must argue my ways to his face. So if you put the context together, put the lexical stuff together, what I think he's saying is, look, I know that if I go to God and plead my case, he might kill me, okay? Because I am calling the God of the universe to trial. And he might kill me for that. He may not like that. But I can't wait. I can't wait any longer. This life is the only life I have. I have to go argue my ways to God. And if that's what he's saying, then the rest of the context makes sense because the next thing he does is he picks up his paper with his case outlined and he says to his friends, and here's what I'm going to tell God when I bring him to court. That's what we're going to look at in a moment. So that's how I would take that verse. I think a runner-up is close to how the NASB translates it. Though he kills me, I will wait for him. Not, not wait for him indefinitely. It's not trust. It's not hope. It's waiting for him to be vindicated. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. So either one of those I think works. I, I think uh, the first one fits the context and uh, the lexical information uh, better. Okay? Does that help? You know, I, I, again, I don't want to pound the pulpit, but I, I think that's what he's saying. And it's always... Uh, it's always a challenge when we come across a verse that's very familiar and we think we know what it means and then you start studying it a little bit and you go, eh, maybe that's not so much what it means. I know that's a challenge. I'm with you on that. Um, but I think that's what he's saying. And, and more importantly, I think that fits the context better. Okay? Any questions on that before we move on, Rich? I think the word that slips us up is nevertheless. Yes. Uh-huh. Sure. Trust in him. Nevertheless, I still want to argue right. my case with him. Right. So I think that sometimes that might steer us back towards the other tradition. Yeah, and here's the problem. That word that's translated nevertheless can be emphatic, can be an emphatic particle translated as I did, surely, or it can be a contrastive. Oops. Con... Extra S in there, contrastive, which can be like but or nevertheless. 
And that particle can mean either of those things. You say, well, which one's right? Well, again, the context has to dictate that. And that's the frustrating part. Um, and I hope you guys know this. If, if you have a little bit of bi- uh, background in Bible study and maybe you have some software and maybe you've done this, um, and, and Terry will affirm this. He does this every week. Uh, studying the original words doesn't mean that you get a firm conclusion. And oftentimes it just makes things more complicated. <laughs> um, studying the grammar doesn't always lead you to a firm, this is how it is, sorts of foundation. It usually leads you to possibilities which the context has to clarify. Brian. Yeah, um, I don't know how hard and fast is punctuation, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's a, that's a really good point in question. You guys know in in both the Greek. New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament, there is no punctuation uh, originally. Uh, a lot of times editors of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament will add punctuation that is helpful. Um, but, but in Hebrew, there, there's no punctuation. And actually, uh, what you're saying makes sense, except that this word on the end of that clause would be way, way out of place. It usually precedes the clause. So, But you're right, it does fit. It does fit. Okay, so... Are we come out of the grammatical woods here? Okay, and let's get back to what this, what this section is really about. This section is about Job wanting to take God to trial. So let's, let's look now at that. And what I want to do is just kind of, just kind of wander through this. And, and uh, let's just talk about what we see, okay? Uh, back up, chapter 13, verse 3. But I would speak to the Almighty. I would desire to argue with God. Verse 15, though he slay me, I can't wait, okay? I will argue my ways before him. This argument, this case, this trial will be my salvation. Now look at verse 17. Listen carefully to my speech and let my declaration fill your ears. Behold, now I have prepared my case. I know that I will be vindicated. Who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. So only... Two things do not do to me. Let's stop right there. Verses 17 and 19, he's looking at the friends and he's saying, here's what I'm going to tell God. Here's what I'm going to say. Be quiet and let me tell you what I'm going to tell God. Verse 17, listen carefully to my speech to God and let my declaration fill your ears. And then starting in chapter uh, 13, verse 20, through the end of chapter 14, okay, that's very important that you see, from from verse 20 in chapter 13 all the way to the end of chapter 14, that's his speech that he wants to tell God. Okay, now let's look at, uh, let's look at what he wants to tell God here, okay? He says two things to God. Two things don't do to me, okay? The first thing that he tells God, he says, I want you to remove your hand from me, verse 21. And let the dread of you, and let not the dread of you terrify me. Do you remember we talked about this last time? Job is saying God's hand is heavy upon him. God's hand is relentless. He will not let up. And he's afraid to go to God. He's actually afraid of God for what God might do if he says, Lord, 
Lord, take this away. So the first thing he wants to tell God if he takes him to court is this. Remove your hand from me and take the terror of you away from me. Okay, God, if you do that, what's going to happen? Verse 22, then call and I will answer. Oh, let me speak and then reply to me. How many, uh, Answer me, he says. I'm going to talk to you and I want you to come out of the darkness. I want you to break your silence, God, and answer me. Let me call on you and then reply to me. What's he want to tell God? Look at verse 23. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make known to me my rebellion and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? What do you think about that? He says, God, why are you punishing me? What's my sin? What's my offense? Will you show me? And then what slips out of his mouth next? Why are you treating me like an enemy? You ever felt like that? You ever felt like God is your enemy? That he's out to get you? That is, his desire is to punish you, not for your good? That's what he says. He says, why are you hiding your face? Why are you being like an enemy and punishing me? Verse 26, you write bitter things against me. You make me to inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in stocks. You watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet while I am decaying like a rotting thing and like a garment that is moth-eaten. We see him in that place where God has become a monster. This is not the God of Scripture. This is not the very present help in the day of trouble. This is not God is my refuge and strength. This is not the Lord is my shepherd. Can we see that? This is God is out to get me. God is punishing me. He's playing games with me. He he brings, as it were, the fire from heaven to smite me, and then he hides. And when I call on him, he doesn't answer me. Not only that, he says God is writing bitter things. He is making him to inherit iniquities from his past. He's chaining his feet in stocks. He's uh, fencing him in like an animal and then leaving him to rot and decay. Remember, he's out on the trash heap. He's out with his skin black, his eyes swollen shut, his sores infested and infected. God's put this fence around him. He's mocking him. He's bitter to him. He's his enemy. He's fled the scene. He wants nothing to do with Job but to just leave him there and die in his decaying state. Job wants to tell him all that. He continues, chapter 14, verse 1, Man who is born of a woman is short-lived. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He flees like a shadow and does not remain. You open your eyes on him. You bring him into judgment with yourself. And then the verse that that, uh, one of you mentioned, who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months are with you and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. God says, Job says, what are we to do? We're in your hand. There's nothing we can do. We're just human. And he cries out in verse 6, so turn your gaze from him that he may rest. Remember we saw last chapter? What does he say? God, just leave me alone. Just, is this how you're going to treat me? Just leave me alone. I don't want anything to do with you. 
He says there's hope in a tree. When it's cut down, it might sprout again, and its shoots will not fail. And its stump dies in the dry soil, and the scent of water, it will flourish and put forth sprigs uh, like a plant. He says trees have hope because if they're cut down, a new sprout, a new shoot might come out of the, the stump, right? But not with people. Verse 10, but man dies and lies prostrate. He expires, and where is he? He says, once a man dies, that's it. There's nothing else. So a man lies down and does not rise until heavens be no more. He will not wake, nor will he be aroused out of his sleep. So what does he say to God? So God, oh, that you would hide me in Sheol. Remember, that's a, a word that means the grave or death. That you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you. That you would set a limit for me and remember me. He says, Lord, just put me in the grave so that this wrath can pass that you're pouring out on me. Verse 14, if a man dies, will he live again? There's that verse. All the days of my struggle I will wait until my change comes. You will call... And I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hands. But for now, you number my steps. You do not observe my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag. And you wrap up my iniquity. But the falling mountains crumble away and the rock moves from its place. Water wears away stones. Its torrents wash away the dust of the earth so that you destroy man's hope. He's saying it's like a mountain crumbling. It's like a river uh, channeling away earth. He says you are stripping away every ounce of hope I have. You forever overpower him and he departs you change his appearance and send him away his sons achieve honor but he doesn't know it why don't they know it because he's dead they become insignificant but he doesn't see it but his body pains him and he mourns only for himself what a hard place to be God is his enemy God is pouring out his wrath on him. He's punishing him and then fleeing so that when Job calls on him, he doesn't answer. He says God strips away his hope. He he wants to take him away so he can't see the prosperity of his own children. God's a monster. And all Job can conclude is that God will leave him alone or kill him. Now, I want to talk about two things before we call it a day here. All of this, all this whole thing that's gone on, this attack on the creator of the universe, all this is based on Job's misinterpretation of what's going on in his life. Do you see that? None of this is founded in reality. All of this goes back to this wrong view of suffering, this retributive theology. Look at where he's ended up. Look look at how this bad theology and the wrong interpretation has led him to this dark place where he's saying, God, just kill me.
We've said it before. I want to say it again. We do not live out of what goes on in our life. We live out of how we interpret what goes on in our life. Right? And what helps us to interpret, or, or I'm sorry, what the, the basis for how we interpret what goes on in life is our theology. And if we pull the curtain back and see what is God doing in this man's life, what God is doing in Job's life is he's pulling back the curtain and he is exposing some really, really, really bad theology in Job's life. And he's showing Job the extent at which that bad theology will corrupt and pollute his life. Look ahead at Job 23. Flip over to Job chapter 23. What he just outlined is his case against God. That's the case he wants to bring against God. God is not doing right. He's playing games with him. He's out to get him. He's his enemy. Look at Job 23. We see the same desire in Job again. Then Job replied, Even today my complaint is rebellion. His hand, God's hand, is heavy despite my groanings. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. Well, why do you want to find God? Verse 4. Then I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him. Did you hear what he just said? The upright, who's that? That's Job. Will reason with who? With the God of the universe? Are you out of your mind? And I would be delivered forever from my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. I go backward, I can't precede him. When he acts on the left, I can't behold him. When he turns to the right, I cannot see him. And he goes on to talk about that. This is a theme of Job. Now, why is this a big deal? Why is this a big deal? Can I show you a preview of coming attractions here? Can I do that? Would you flip ahead to Job chapter 40? Now, even understanding that some people like to read the end of the book first, I think that tends to ruin a good story, but that's just me. I, want, I think this will be helpful, okay? We have to see that ultimately the biggest issue in this book as it relates to Job is this charge that God is being unjust and that he wants to take God to trial to plead his case. That is the issue. That is the bottom line. Okay? And I want to prove that to you. Okay? In chapter 38, who finally speaks in chapter 38 of Job? God does. And he comes answering out of the whirlwind, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without Knowledge. Who do you think that you are? 
And we'll talk about that when we get here. What is the bottom line as to why God finally opens his mouth in the narrative? Look at chapter 40, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Do you know what you're doing, Job? Who are you to bring a trial, to bring a charge, to contend? You ready? With the God of the universe? Let him who reproves God answer that. And praise God, we see that underneath that bad theology is a humble man who's willing to repent and turn back to God. This whole book is about the audacity of the creature standing in judgment of the Creator. Let me just ask you a question. Maybe you've never said, I have something against God and I want to take Him to trial. Maybe you've never said that. Maybe you've never taken the time, as Job did, to write out what your case would be, what your charges would be, what your evidence would be. Maybe you've never done that. Have you ever grumbled against Him? Have you ever gotten angry because you don't like how he's running his universe? Have you ever said, Lord, why is it this way? In a condemning, judgmental fashion. Do you have bitterness in your heart? Bitterness and anger. We saw last time, sarcasm. All of those are symptoms of the same issue that Job is wrestling with here. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why is this such a big deal? Here's why. You don't need to turn there, because I think you all know it. What does Romans 1 say? This is sin, okay? This is sin. Sin, according to Romans 1, is putting the creature above the Creator. That's sin. In Romans 1 language, when we replace the truth of God with a lie and worship and serve the creature instead of the Creator. Sin is putting the creature above the Creator. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3 with me, please. Genesis chapter 3. You know the story. Adam and Eve are in paradise. They're walking with God. They're enjoying this wonderful garden. They have everything they need. They're perfect. There's no sin. There's no sickness. There's no death. There's no anything. They are in paradise. The serpent comes to them. And he says, Has God said, 
You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Stop. Stop. Look up. Look up. What did he just do, the serpent? What did he do? He put down the sovereignty of God? What? Okay. Okay. Where did sin start? Sin started when Satan introduced to humanity this thought. You can question God. You say, well, I thought the first sin was pride. Well, yeah, it was pride. I thought it was selfish. Yeah, it was idolatry, yeah. But, but, but before all that, here is the thought that had never crossed a human mind before, okay? The creature can stand in judgment of the Creator. That's the thought. That's the subtlety here. Eve, did God really say this? Instead of accepting and trusting and obeying what God had clearly spoken to them, Satan says, really? Did he really say that? What do you think about what he said? And, and it goes on. You know the story. And, and the woman said, well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And then he comes out. The serpent said, you shall not die. For God knows in the day you eat of it, your, lie, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now watch the progression. It's okay to question God. It's okay to stand in judgment of God. It's okay to conclude that something God is doing isn't right. So you can do this instead. You see that? It all starts with the thought, it's okay to question God. It's okay for the creature to stand in judgment of his creator. Um... I like to summarize the first sin with this word. Autonomy. You say, what? Autonomy? What does autonomy mean? It has two sides to it. One side is I am independent, right? This, this is Fourth of July weekend. It's the declaration of independence, right? That, okay. Autonomy means I am independent, not dependent. That's the heart of sin. I don't need God. Right? I'm independent. I'm not dependent. And more to the matter, autonomy implies self-government. It means I am my own master. Um, I don't submit to another. Okay? Take any sin. Take any sin. At its heart, it is a desire to be independent of God, not dependent, and to be our own master rather than to submit to Him. That is the bottom line, heart, center, foundation of all sin. It started in the garden. 
Actually, it didn't start in the garden. You know where it started? Isaiah 14. What did Satan say? I will ascend to heaven. I will make myself what? Like the Almighty. Yes. This is where you need to go. Because the, typically uh, in apologetics you try to provide all this proof and evidence mm-hmm. and think of what yeah. you're doing, not doing that. Yeah. You're doing that. You're saying, Well, let's judge right. God. Let's let's try right. to you know use your own four pound mass of tissue between your ears. <laughs> And I appreciate you saying that because if you get a handle on this, it has huge implications for apologetics. If you've ever heard the term presuppositional apologetics, that's what that's all about. Okay, now, why is this a big deal? Let's wrap it up here, okay? Why is this a big deal? Because God is putting his finger in this book of Job on the absolute issue as it comes to sin. And that is the desire to stand in judgment of the Creator. To say, I don't need you, and I'm going to stand in judgment of you. I'm going to be my own master. I'm not going to submit to you. I'm going to stand in judgment of you. And this is the heart and soul of sin. Romans 1 says that's what all sinful people do. It's what Adam and Eve fell into. It's what Satan did in Isaiah 14. Everything comes down to this issue of, I want to stand in judgment. I want to be, you ready? the God of my own universe. That's why Job is such a big deal. That's why God steps on the stage and says, enough, enough. This is reality. This is true. So we might say it like this. Suffering has uncovered the root sin in every human heart. And you know what's true? Suffering reveals that in us too, doesn't it? Doesn't suffering reveal that in our hearts we want to stand in judgment of God sometimes? That we want to be independent of Him and not dependent? That we want to be the master and Lord of our own life instead of submitting to His Lordship? that we think we can do a better job, that we think we've got it better, that we understand it better, that we have more resources, more power. And here's, here, here's the bottom line. If that's really where Job is, think with me, okay? If that's really where Job is, who is he really trusting in in his trial? Connect the dots. What's that? Himself. Do you see that? That's what this is all about. This is all about exposing Job. You're not trusting in God. You're not clinging to Him. You're trusting yourself. You're going right back where it all started. Let me ask you a question. Who do you really trust in in your time of suffering? Or maybe we can frame it like this. What is your functional savior in suffering? What's that? 
<laughs> How bad is the suffering? What we need to learn, guys, is that this is in our heart. It's the bottom of every sin. And oftentimes in suffering, God is revealing areas of our life where this is in play. And the reason it is so toxic and the reason God is so committed to do something about it is at the bottom line, it means I'm not trusting in him. I'm trusting in me. Yes, Sheila. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I appreciate you saying that. And um, this is a very honest book. I hope as you, are you guys reading Job? You still reading Job? This is a very honest book. And it recognizes that even godly people... Uh, remember my analogy, trying to steer the plane with the rudders, right? Trying to keep it on center line. Um, even godly people have trouble keeping it on center line. Um, godly people struggle. Godly people end up in the ditch. And and part of what we're supposed to see is God pursuing this man who does love God, who does walk with Him. He sees him in the ditch. He sees this area of his life. That says, "I want that to change." And so he brings this about to continue to conform him to the image of Christ through that. So that is true. Absolutely true. Yeah, Rusty. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Um, enough for now. Let's pray.